Yeah, I, I think our human soul has kind of one foot in heaven and one foot in hell. And we have this incredible potential as human beings on this earth to kind of walk with the angels and be like Mother Teresa and bring unlimited amounts of compassion and joy into people's lives. And we also have almost unlimited potential to destroy people and to be evil. And it's really up to us to be awake enough to realize that and decide what we're going to actualize. You're listening to Find the Good News, Episode 117, The Weeping Sunset, a Beacon Series conversation featuring Reverend Dr. Kenneth Patrick, author of Journeying to the End of Life, Discovering the Ancient Hospice Way of Companioning the Dying. Find the Good News is produced by Parker Brand Creative Services, a branding agency that thinks sideways, pushes forward, and gets your brand up. See what else we do at parkerbrandup.com. Often, it's in revisiting a conversation during editing that its value truly sinks in. As you may know, it can be several weeks or even months after I've had a visit with a guest before their episode is published. On many occasions, going back to listen to the conversation reveals little details I missed, or perhaps didn't key in on, while in the natural flow with a guest. Or, as I had happened with this particular episode, the world around me changes in ways that affect my interior landscape, giving new meaning to my guest's words. When considered in this light, editing becomes less a necessary task and more of a gift. My guest in this episode, Reverend Dr. Kenneth Patrick, an ordained Methodist minister, gave me the great gift of his time, and it has acted as a prescription for what ails me as we face, yet again, another surge of the COVID-19 virus in the United States of America. The truth is, I've been circling the drain and have felt myself losing hope in my fellow being's capacity to do the right thing, resolved to simply bear witness and weep privately for all the dismay and despair on full display. How am I to produce a show about finding the good when I clearly hold a tarnished view of those I would call human? brothers and sisters. The truth is, I need these episodes as much as anyone. I need to hear these good people doing good works in the world. People like Kenneth Patrick, who have dedicated their lives to the service of others, even though they too bear witness to the same calamities as I. Kenneth is the author of the book, Journeying to the End of Life, and in it he presents what he calls the ancient hospice way of being a true companion and servant to the dying. In our conversation, Kenneth reveals that at a young age, he made a type of pact with himself that he would serve where people were suffering the most. You will discover, as I did, that he has spent his whole life doing that very thing. Kenneth advocates moving outside our comfort bubbles and into situations that require work, work that effectively changes the world in a real and tangible way so that it can truly meet and help others where they are. As an army chaplain, Kenneth brought solace and comfort to soldiers. As a compassionate social activist, he has hiked the Appalachian Trail solo, that's over 2,100 miles, to raise enough money to help Rom House, a day shelter for the homeless in Virginia, an endeavor that has helped over 5,000 people, serving over 41,000 meals. All the experiences of his life have led to his current passion, providing compassionate companionship and care for those facing the end of their lives, considering this to be the most vital social issue of our age. The hospice method that he presents brings patients, families, healthcare professionals, and faith communities together in unison to reduce the layers of suffering that occur during the sunset of life, outlining training and resources so human beings can die at home with dignity, well cared for, surrounded by those they love. Now, if you are like me, if you are feeling the burden of a world in pain, weary from too much bad news, 
I invite you to listen to this conversation with a man that does not deny or turn away from the reality of the difficult age we find ourselves in. A man that encourages us to lean into our weeping during this time of sunset and in the tears find a divine love. An encouragement to work and to hope. I invite you, dear listener, to tune your attention to this Good News Beacon and press play on a little good news. Wake up this morning Dreaming up the story I can hear The way it's going Cause you're laughing in your sleep On the path to your deliverance In a holy wall of light Through your window Old news, bad news, fake news Sometimes you want to shut those signals down and seek a better source. With my Find the Good News Beacon series, I tune into good people doing good works wherever I can find them. I scan across the full spectrum of life, seeking out human beings that have turned their dials towards helping others, aligning their time, resources, and talents with goodness, justice, mercy, and love. In each episode, I sync up with the hearts and minds of my extraordinary guests. We have dynamic conversations that invigorate the mind long after our transmission has ended. I discover the critical life experiences that shape them, the perspectives that drive them, and the fundamental beliefs that have anchored them to a path of goodness. There's a lot of background noise in the world. My name is Oren Parker, and I'm cutting through the static to find the good. Well, thanks for taking the time to do this. I, um, I I haven't got the books yet, but I I've been reading about you and trying to you know get freshened up, and I'm highly interested in what we're going to talk about and see where this goes. Uh, okay, I'm fascinated actually. I, I I read that you hiked the Appalachian Trail. Yes, it was in 1987. It was to open a shelter for homeless people. I was um, like the CEO, the head of a clergy group, and we were in Roanoke, Virginia. We were given an abandoned Catholic church for $1. At the time, we had kind of a flood of homeless people that were living in shell, they were living in their cars, really, coming through Interstate 81 in Roanoke, and they had nowhere to go during the day. Salvation Army and Rescue Mission would open up at night, but they in the winter, they had nowhere to go. So we got the idea of opening this as a homeless shelter. I had people sponsor me so much from Mile on the Trail. The Roanoke Times newspaper decided to follow me. So I would write a journal entry every night in a little tent with a candle. When I got into town in about five days, I'd mail it to the Roanoke Times. They would publish it, and they followed my hike through. Uh, the shelter opened. It served about a million meals since it's been opened. In wow. Rome. And my pack was struck by lightning. And I lost my sight. I lost my hearing in a violent thunderstorm. But it came back. So Man, I'm doing okay. That is incredible. So how old were you when you did that? Uh, I'd like late 30s, like late. 37 or something. Yeah. I was, I was talking to my wife this morning. I said, you know, I what an adventure that must have been. And then just for such a good cause. And, and the reason behind it. But at the same time, I, I was sitting there in my recliner as we were drinking coffee. And I thought, you know, I'm 46 years old. And I was like, <laughs> okay, so I want to know today how old he was when he got this idea yeah. and made this decision to put his feet on the trail. 
Yeah, one of the things you discover on the trail, and I, you see it in the military, you see it in wilderness areas, is that we all live inside this little bubble of our comfort zone, and it's very tight and it's very restricted. But the reality of where you can really be in this world is so far beyond that comfort zone. You can't even dream of where it is. Yeah. And, and it's really quite a, an eye-opening spiritual experience to realize what a tiny bubble you're inside of. Um, were, you, kind of cool. were you a hiker before you decided to do this? Uh, as no, the- not really. I'm not a particularly athletic person. And then I had Guillain-Barre about five years ago, which is like reversible multiple sclerosis. I was totally paralyzed. Really? In neurological intensive care. Um, they used immigobulin therapy. There's a long story, an interesting story behind that. And then I did a year of physical therapy. So I'm back to normal again. I've that... had cancer. I had surgery. I'm a cancer survivor. I'm totally cancer free. So I'm, I'm fine. That's incredible. So you've really, I mean, that's what a textured and and rich life though you've had right i mean yeah i i went to high school on okinawa my father is in the army i fell absolutely in love was in buddhism um then i kind of looked at the i wanted to look at the western traditions of spirituality and the monastic traditions i did kind of a doctorate in the west another doctorate in eastern religions um, now I'm with people at the end of life as a spiritual counselor, guide, director. So, when did that always, start for you? I mean, as far yeah. as the drawing, drawing to the end of life care. Yeah, I've always tried to figure out where are people suffering the most in the world. Where is the greatest degree of suffering that's possible, and that's where I wanted to be called by the Spirit to be in ministry. So I looked at the military chaplaincy. I was there for a short time. I worked with homeless people for about 12 years, and now I'm with people at the end of life, because I think that's where the ego cracks and life is so real. Yeah. It's just so, so amazingly present at the end of life. So. Yeah. And, I, and you know, it's interesting because the listeners can't hear the or see this, but I see the look on your face when you say that. It, it almost sounds like it brings you joy to be able to help people in those spaces. Yeah, it's not. It's it's just where the divine spirit is. It's where you're with people. It's where life is real and open, and all the phoniness disappears, and the spirit is really present. So yeah. it's a wonderful place to be. The crack, yeah. the fissure, that that moment, yeah. and and it seems like that could occur at different points in our life through different means, right? I mean, because I know for me, and it's it's been related to death and despair. But it seems like when I've when I've had those moments, that was really the gate. That was always yeah. the the pool. Like I didn't even know it at the time when I was younger that I was wading into a space that was going to be transformative, you know. But then mm-hmm. when I would come out, I was like, oh, in hindsight, you could see it. It was like that that suffering or that despair or that feeling of of hopelessness almost was actually the path into. Yeah like a type of micro awakening. And and I guess I say micro awakening because at the time when I was in my twenties, I thought, Oh, I've, I woke up. Like I had these ideas. And then as I've got, you know, decades go by, you go, Oh wait, it's just a string of micro awakenings, a string of these experiences over and over. And they all kind of have a similar pattern to them. 
And I think one of the greatest things in life is to be in a position where you can enable people to embrace that as their authentic self and the full meaning of life, because most of us either run from it because we're scared from about it or we're pushing it away because it seems so weird and odd. And, you know, it's at odds with our normal culture. But to be in a position where you can help people embrace it in all its fullness and it brings such a blessing in their life and your life. And you can do that. I'd love to know. I mean, I'm always curious where this starts for people, you know, because I mean, and it's so different from person to person, as I'm sure you've experienced many times in your life. But when I visit with people, I, I, I love hearing where they think the hinge moment was, like where they can look back on their timeline and say, oh, right here is where I begin to see in myself an attraction or a shift towards these things. Uh, for me, there's always been a divine presence. It's always been there. Um, uh, and one of the interesting, sort of with that, one of the things I did to sort of enable that in my life is I did a pilgrimage to Assisi years ago ah. because I wanted to see the very best of the human spirit. Okay. Where's the very best that a soul could do on the earth? And I think it's St. Francis. And when you come to the town of Assisi, I, I took the train from Rome. Assisi's up on a hill, and there's almost a glow around the town. You, there's a divine spiritual presence to Assisi. There's a huge basilica built on top of the mountain, but the original little chapel where St. Francis was is down below. So I walked into this real dark little chapel, and it seemed like I was alone. And then I, I, I kind of sensed a few people were crying, and they were just overwhelmed with the love of St. Francis. Then as your eyes adjust, there are hundreds of people in the darkness just sitting there crying, mm. overwhelmed with the presence of St. Francis. Then uh, last summer, I wanted to see the very worst of the human spirit, so I did a pilgrimage to Auschwitz. And one of the things you can do in Auschwitz is go into the actual gas chamber, and they'll close the door, and you just it's just overwhelming when you think of how many thousands of innocent people died right where you're standing, yeah. you know, and their, their soul was just destroyed there by the Nazis for no reason, really. I mean, it, just because they could. Uh, and so to see the best and the worst of the human spirit are just incredible. It's, it's an amazing experience. I think that is, I mean, I, I hearing you say that, I mean, just when you were speaking the words, um, I was just overwhelmed with the grief of that. Yeah. I mean, just hearing what you just said, I mean, it just hit me. <laughs> We're pretty early in this conversation for this to be hitting me, but I mean, that's a hard thing to put into words. And, uh, listening to you speak about it is actually refreshment to be honest with you, because I, um, I understand what you're saying. I mean, I've, I don't want to use the word struggle, but it's always weighed heavy on me, this human suffering, even as a young child, not just human suffering, but the suffering of creatures, too. And mm -hmm. uh, even as a young boy, I remember feeling uh, overwhelmed by that, like a feeling of uh, and the only word I can call it is like a feeling of great moaning going mm -hmm. on in the world. And it was just... Um, Gosh, this is really difficult. I didn't expect this to happen, man. <laughs> Not like this. And when you brought up Auschwitz, I just, 
that's one, even in high school, I remember my first exposure to what was in history class, honestly. One of our history teachers had shown us documentaries of World War II and some of the concentration camps. And I remember that stuck with me in a way that I just couldn't really put into words. And it, it kind of entered into one of my cracks, I think. And I went, oh, my God, there's this great despair, mm-hmm. you know, that I wasn't aware of. I mean, I remember my grandfather was a World War II soldier. I didn't just I didn't fully understand and I couldn't understand where does this great pain, this great need to cause pain and hurt. Where does this come from? And I couldn't understand it. And it kind of broke, I guess, broke me a little bit. Mm hmm. Yeah, I, I think our human soul has kind of one foot in heaven and one foot in hell. And we have this incredible potential as human beings on this earth to kind of walk with the angels and be like Mother Teresa and bring unlimited amounts of compassion and joy into people's lives. And we also have almost unlimited potential to destroy people and to be evil. And it's really up to us to be awake enough to realize that and decide what we're going to actualize. And then we we really have that in our hands and to really see that fullness of the human soul is just incredible of who we really are yeah. as a divine presence here we, we 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 have so much beauty we could create art and music and literature and, and but we also have such incredible potential for destruction and yeah. that's the beauty of the soul i think yeah it is it's beautiful and it's hard to not look at it that it's hard to look at it that way sometimes i mean i i am guilty of falling into despair i mean you know i say no. guilty i don't know if that's even the right word I, but i'm i've struggled with that uh at a certain point in my life i just hit a, a place where i almost god this is, sounds so strange and i don't really know how to verbalize but i almost felt like i want i wanted to wrap myself in it like it mm-hmm. was a strange thing like i felt like if i didn't do that from time to time that i was living some kind of lie mm-hmm yeah, it's in the Buddhist tradition. When you look at the beauty of the water lily, it really has its roots in the mud underneath of the water. And that's sort of where all of us are, is that we do have our roots in this mud. Yeah. <laughs> and to be open and honest about that. And I think that willingness to to be rooted in the mud, but at the same time, the beauty of the water lilies there that flows out of that. So it's not either or, but it's it's the fullness of the human soul. And in the Buddhist tradition, it's just embracing that in our life and not rejecting it. It's and, interesting. There's a song and I listen to it every year when I go on my spiritual retreat. And it's actually from um, Chris Cornell, who committed suicide many years ago. And the one line, the name of the song is Wide Awake. And it was a popular rock song. But that lyric, this one lyric I listened to just hits the point. And he says in the song, come pull a sheet over my eyes hmm. so I can sleep tonight in spite of what I've seen today. I find you guilty of the crime of sleeping at a time when you should have been wide awake. Hmm. And that just, when I hear it, I just, it, I, I always listen to it on as like the first kind of song as I'm driving to retreat because it, it's so, uh, it's like a little micro portrait for me, mm-hmm. you know, and it sounds like you get that. Like, that's almost like what you want to, mm-hmm. to be fully wide awake and see within those dark spaces. Mm-hmm. 
and they're, they're so much a part of our soul. So, but we all push them away or reject them or ignore them. Yeah. But it, it's really the fullness of the human experience. Yeah, I didn't yeah. even know where to begin with this conversation today. I was, I was really, I, again, I was talking with my wife, and I said, "These are so many shades and dimensions and layers that I'm picking up from just the little I can glean from his story." And uh, I'm, I'm very curious to see where this spider's off. But uh, the one thing that I that I think it sounds like you're working in now specifically is end of life. Care. Mm-hmm. Can we talk yes. about that a little bit? Sure. That'd be wonderful. So I had an experience um, f- going on six years ago when my father died. And I'll share this with you, and I think it might be a great way for us to navigate or enter this little stream. So my father, he was a Vietnam veteran, and he had started having problems in the late, late last years of his life. There were neurological, physical, a lot of strange things in it. It was um, misdiagnosis. Well, I say misdiagnosis, many diagnoses. And uh, what they ultimately determined is it was something having to do with his Agent Orange exposure. He had mm-hmm. a variety of problems that were sort of cascading together. You know, they were just sort of layering on top of each other. And to skip over some of the details, he ended up in the hospital and was on a a ventilator and in ICU while he was in, he was going to therapy for some of his, help him get some of his abilities back to speak and talk and walk and things like that. But then he took a plunge while he was in therapy and ends up in ICU on a ventilator. And I did get to go see him a few times in ICU, very short periods of time that you're allowed in there. Uh, My mother had been in the waiting room for days and days and days, exhausted, you know, with hope that dad's going to come home. And you could see clearly that that wasn't going to happen. And I remember when one of the doctors asked all of us as a family to come into a room and they were like, you know, we've got a, we need to have this conversation. You know, the breathing machine is, he's not working against it as much as we'd like. Um, it's going to come to a point where the machine is going to be doing all the breathing and we need to have this conversation. You know, you know, you've probably have a lot of experience with these types of conversations. And, um, I remember my mother looking at the, us, the children and saying, I, what, what do y'all want to do? And I remember thinking like, we're all now responsible for this decision. You know, your, your father's life is now your decision, which was a heavy thing. Um, that night at the wait in the waiting room and went back in the waiting room and I told my mother, I said, I think you need to go home tonight, you know, just go home and get some rest. Just, you can come back, but just get home and rest. Well, that night is the night my, my father stopped breathing and he, and he died. It was a miserable experience. And when I went to go see my father, he, I could tell he was miserable. He couldn't talk, but he would look, I could see like, for a very few times in my life I've ever thought my father was afraid, but I saw fear in his eyes. Like I really, he didn't, he was afraid, but it was so cold. The whole experience, it was like, this is not the way a human being should die is what I kept thinking. Like this man shouldn't be dying this way. He should be at home in his bed and comfortable. And we should be there and be able to hold his hand and not have these little micro minutes that were allowed to come in. It all felt robotic and, Anyway, it stuck with me that there was something wrong with that process. Mm-hmm. 
and it has been for like years. It feels like there's a ghost living inside of my psyche somewhere from that whole experience. And I feel like that might enter into your territory of what you're trying to accomplish. Mm -hmm. Right. So at, at the end, I wrote a book on looking at that whole experience journey into the end of life. And I studied the way we have approached death and dying in Western culture from the Middle Ages to modern times. And I looked at the spirituality of it, and I don't think anyone's ever done that. And so it's a continuum, and I've came up with a new model that I've tried to present to Congress of how to do this that addresses what you say. To lay out kind of the foundation for it, there's a difference between pain and suffering. Doctors and the medical community confuse the two, and the common person does, but it's helpful to differentiate. Pain is the physiological response of the body to unpleasant sensations. The medical community is really 100% on board with dealing with pain. They know how to deal with pain and how to get you comfortable. They, they really, in our hospice, there are four indications of people's pain. There's shortness of breath, nausea, anxiety, and pain. We know how to cope with that. We are 100% on board with pain. Suffering is more the emotional and spiritual response to a situation that we internalize in our life. The medical community has no clue of how to deal with suffering <laughs> normally. So they, they really are clueless of what to do with suffering. So the question at the end of life really is, yes, we can address the pain in the intensive care unit or at home. But the suffering piece has gone neglected, and that really has tormented souls mm. because we in the West have not learned how to deal with it. If you look at studies by AARP, medical centers, other communities, especially the baby boomers, very high percentage of people, it's in the 80 to 90% range, depending on which study you look at, want to die at home. That's, that's it's across the board overwhelming that people want to die at home. But if you look at the national statistics, only depending on where you are, only about one third of people are able to die at home. So there's a real disconnect in the area of suffering between what the desires of the soul are and what is going to bring peace to the family and where we actually are as a nation. And I think if we're going to have death be an experience that's at least acceptable, healing, comfortable, if you want to call it a good death, if there is such a thing for most people, but if you want to bring a sense of comfort to people at the end of life, you've got to close that disconnect mm. between what is the desire of the soul and what is the reality of how it plays out in yeah. our system. So, looking at from the Middle Ages to modern times, I recreated what the first death in hospice care, which is end-of-life care in our country, what it would have looked like in the Middle Ages. And I asked, is there a model for bringing comfort to the soul in terms of suffering at the end of life? And I feel sort of divinely inspired that I came up with a model which is simple, easy, practical, usable, and I would hope Congress would take a look at it. And buy, And I think Biden wants end-of-life care to be at home. So I came up with a model for him to use. Wow. Uh, I don't know how to get it to him, but it's called – can I share it with you? Please do. I'm, I'm, I'm all ears, yes. So the model is called Hospice Home Companioning. 
So we have these professional people in every community that are skilled in end-of-life care. They're funded by Medicare, and they are hospice workers. So the saying of the National Hospice and Palliative Care Organization, if I could paraphrase it, is when medical science can offer no more days, hospice comes to make each day more. So our role is to provide comfort for the soul at the end of life, address the medical piece of the pain, but also bring into it the area of suffering. So the way it works is if somebody in your family were, say, a natural disease process like a heart attack or cancer or whatever, were to get a terminal diagnosis that they have, say, six months left, Mm -hmm. okay? Then there would be an option that's on the table for your family is hospice home companioning. Someone in your immediate family could take off from work and become a hospice home companion. They could take off for up to six months. I'd like to see it a year, but it's at least six months. And that's the window for hospice care is six months. And they would not lose their job. They would be able to go back to it. And it would be no different than a medical Uh, family leave, no different, but it would be extended out, and it would be the same as a military deployment. You get to leave, but you get to come back to your job. So when they leave their job, they would go through an 8- to 12-week training program by professional hospice caregivers, and we will teach you how to safely take care of your loved one at home. We'll teach you how to bathe them, how to turn them, how to give them medication. We'll teach you the skills that you need to know to be a companion, a hospice companion at home. So at the end of your 8 to 12 week training course, you if you can demonstrate that you know how to safely take care of a loved one, we will certify you as a hospice home companion. Okay. Now, what the government will do, and this will happen through Congress and through Biden, is that there will be a tax credit available to the family. So we'll look at the cost of care, uh, of nursing home care in your community, nationwide average around $75,000 a year. Okay, we'll look at a sliding scale of what your family income is, and you will be able to shelter as a tax credit up on a sliding scale up to that $75,000. So the government doesn't actually hand you a check, but they let you shelter your income from federal and I would hope state, but at least federal income tax. Okay. you might, if it, depending on what the numbers are in your family, you might be able to recover most of the tax money that you would pay out that year so that you would be able to stay afloat financially. Yeah. Okay, so what would happen is, so you're the hospice home companioning. Your job is to take care of your loved one. The government is assisting you with your tax credit. At least one, probably once a week, a skilled hospice nurse will come in and will certify that your care is meeting nationally accredited standards so we don't have elder abuse in the home. And if you're not meeting the care, then you have to get either retrained or you're out of the program. Okay? Yep. So... The way we we deal with this issue of loneliness and isolation, which is the big suffering piece, is that you look at what faith community are you a part of. Mm -hmm. Okay, you might be Baptist, you might be Roman Catholic, you might be Islamic, Jewish, whatever you are, or you might be atheist, too, and I would consider atheist a faith stance. So, at least once a month, I'd like to see it every week, but at least once a month, all of the Catholic, say, families that are in a community um, come together 
together for a free meal. Churches know how to do meals. We can do meals. I'm a pastor. We know how to do (laughs) meals. So you get a free meal once a month at your local Catholic church for all the Catholic families that are in this hospice home companion program. The Catholic church provides a volunteer to come in and sit with your loved one while you're at the meal. Okay, so you've got eight Catholic families, say, and you have the free meal. After the meal is over with, a hospice social worker who's very trained in end-of-life care comes and meets with you, with these eight people, as your support group. Okay, you go off in a private room, and you're a support group, and you talk about the issue of suffering and the challenges of providing care for this person. And I would hope you get very specific. So you say, I need somebody to come in and do some laundry. I need somebody to come in and cut the grass. Or I'm emotionally overwhelmed with this. And the social worker says, is this how the rest of you feel? And you you talk through it. Then you got a list, a laundry list, of what that family needs to keep this thing afloat. Okay? So they go back to the Catholic Church, and they get volunteers and they come into the home and they provide whatever those services are that you need and it's simple like you can come have people come in and do your laundry you can have people come in and cut the grass you know stuff sure anybody can do that you know and it could be young people it could be teenagers it could be an older person it could be anybody somebody drops by after work and mows the front yard no big deal so what that does is it especially for the baby boomer generation that's disconnected from faith communities it shows the vitality of true faith that faith is service in people's lives. It's compassion, it's love, it's caring. So a little eight-year-old kid in the home sees these church members come in and do the laundry, and they say, oh, that's what Christianity is. That's what Catholicism is. Right. It's doing the laundry. Right. Wow, right. what a witness for the faith communities. Oh, man. Now, uh, and then the next piece of it is that when the patient dies in hospice home companioning, the support group continues to meet. So they might start with one person, but instead of meeting, and they have the dinners and they meet, but instead of meeting with a hospice um, social worker, they meet with a bereavement counselor, mm. and it becomes a bereavement support group. So then you process the suffering with the death. Yeah. And as each person, you know, has a loved one that dies in the group, they join the group. So the group gets, starts getting bigger because all these people are dropping into it. And it could meet indefinitely, really. As long as people need the group, it could be, it could go on for years. Why not? You know, it's just sure. a meal. Sure. So it's people are talking about how do I get rid of Jim's clothes or I don't want to do that. I don't want to make this change and go into an apartment because I can't take care of the big house. That becomes the issue of the support group. And then what's cool is that after you've been through hospice home companioning and you've been through the support group and bereavement, hopefully this has touched your heart and touched your soul. And you become one of the leaders in your faith community to make this thing happen. So you recycle back and you sponsor one of the dinners and you're there serving because that's that's touched you so much. And it would take a while to get this thing off the ground. But what would happen is, say you were really close to your grandmother. She really touched you growing up. Say your parents were horrible people and you grew up with your grandparents. So you decide you want to take care of grandma. So you would go ahead and get the hospice home companion training and certification before when you saw grandma 
all going down. And instead of taking that job out in Los Angeles, you take the job, you know, around Washington, D.C., and Grandma lives in Washington. So you step in when Grandma needs the care. So after a while, it would become the norm in our community. Um, and there's a, there's a way to break the ice for hospice home companioning that I would love to present to Congress. Um, and so the idea is that at the beginning of life in high school, we have kids carry around a sack of flour and that's a baby and right. they have meals. Why in the world don't we do the same thing at the end of life? So before you graduate from a public high school, the very last year of high school, in your last semester, there should be a journeying course. Journeying to the end of life course is what I would call it after my book. So in that course, it's volunteer, but in that course, you companion a dying person in a local nursing so once a week, you go in and visit this person. They're dying, and you do something with them. You bake cookies. You watch Andy Griffith on TV. You do something. <laughs> you do bingo with them, you know. And then in the middle, in that course, you have an oncologist come in and talk about how do people die in our society. You go to a funeral. You go to, you know, talk with people in the medical profession, um, and, and you might go to an emergency room and you, you really meet with some of the staff, and you have to write a term paper at the end of that course on what is your understanding of suffering, end-of-life care, death, and what did you learn from this course. And if the person, your companion, dies, you go to their funeral, and, you, and your, their funeral becomes part of your term paper. So anyway, by the time you leave high school at 18, you've got your toe in the water yeah. of what end of life is and that opens the door up to this program because you've had some awareness of it so anyway that's wow. one of my ideas <laughs> i i'm listening to this and my it's just got things firing off inside of me i mean all i what a road map you've laid out i mean it's beautiful Long-time Find the Good News listeners know that we often meander into topics on spirit, mysticism, religion, and wisdom traditions. If you are interested in these topics, I encourage you to seek out my new podcast, The Dawn Deacon with Brother Oren. On The Dawn Deacon Podcast, I consider my small place in the whole of creation, asking the old questions that have perplexed human beings for ages. Why are we here? Is there a reason for our existence? How do we balm our sufferings? enlighten our minds, and awaken our hearts? Are there powers, energies, and realities just beyond our ability to comprehend them? On the Dawn Deacon podcast, I share the teachings, practices, and perspectives I have gathered as I've made my varied, sacred, ordinary way. I hope you'll join me at the Dawn Deacon podcast so that we can traverse this landscape together. Just search The Dawn Deacon with Brother Oren in your favorite podcast app or search engine, then subscribe. Well, there's even more. There's more to it. <laughs> there's even more. So one of the, the big issue at the end of life, if we address suffering, is loneliness and isolation. Okay? So we've covered the medical piece. We've gotten you comfortable with your pain, your shortness of breath, your nausea, your anxiety, but you're very lonely because you're so isolated. Okay? Mm. So we bring in the hospice home companion. The next piece, which I think is absolutely beautiful for America, is why don't we place service animals with loved ones? 
and with you with a dying person and if the hospice home companion is in the home and there's no pet in the home why in the world can't we bring in a service animal yeah. Why can't we do that? Yeah. Because they could do so much for people. I mean, service animals would be wonderful with elderly people. Yeah. If you had somebody there to take care of them. Sure. You know, the dog could be a, a wonderful golden retriever to curl up with, you know. Yeah. That would bring you the newspaper. And, you know, that, could, that would be wonderful. It's true. And that would really address the suffering piece. Yeah, loneliness is is uh, epidemic in itself. I mean, it really does. I mean, I think when you're lonely in a, in a in a way that it actually can cause health problems. I mean, not just mental yeah. health problems, but physical needs and changes in you. And it's the core of the suffering at the end of life is loneliness and isolation. So we need to address that. So the hospice home companion would be one way. A service animal would be another. I think there would be kids in high school that would love to be part of placing service animals. I think it would be a wonderful project to be out there in the community, to have high school kids involved in training and and have them involved with service animals. I, I would have loved to have done it in high school. Everything you're talking about <laughs> lends towards a more genteel uh, society. I mean, it breeds yes. more compassion in, in us at a younger age, you know, right. and, and it marries, uh, it marries what you're talking about, no matter what religion or faith you come from, or even right. like, as you said, whether you're a secular humanist or something to that, at that nature, you know, it marries those things to service to others in a very mm -hmm. real and tangible way. It can get framed through, you know, the cosmology of your faith, whatever that faith may be. But ultimately, it brings it very much down to earth on the ground in the service of your your fellow creature. Right. And so even if you're an atheist why, and you really don't want anything to do with the faith community, you could have the Ruritans and the Lions do the dinner, you know, sure. you know BFW, you know. Right. There's a theological piece to this. In the United Methodist Church, what got John Wesley and the Methodist movement off the ground was the Industrial Revolution of the late 1700s. So you had masses of people from the agrarian culture pouring into industrial areas. Uh, and as a result, there, were, there really was no social safety net in place. So the Methodist Church, and John Wesley, stepped into that crisis situation. And the Sunday schools actually were schools uh, that provided for children that were basically slave labor in the industrial meals. And out of that came the Methodist movement. We're at a very similar kind of epicenter right now that the baby boomer generation, 70, 80 million strong, is coming to the end of life, and our nation really doesn't have a plan for what to do with it. Mm. So hospice home companioning is saying, don't build more nursing homes. That's not the answer. What we're going to end up with is a bubble of facilities that we're not going to have really a use for. Uh, instead, the church should have a witness by engaging these baby boomer, this baby boomer generation. And that would revitalize, I think, the faith community, but it also would bring compassion yeah. in the baby boomer generation. So it would be, a, I think, a beautiful marriage if we could pull it off. Well, you know, it, it, this is bringing back a memory, and it's not just a memory. It's actually something current that I just never really put together. And it's it just goes to show you that what we're shown is what we learn. 
And uh-huh. when we're shown it over and again, that's what we're going to do. You know, my, and I'll, I'll tell you this story. My grandmother, when I was very young, I guess I was five years old, my great-grandfather, who I, I carry his name, Emil, his name was Emil Terrio. Uh-huh. My middle name is Emil. He passed away when I was five. But I had five years of memories of him, but he lived in my grandmother's house. Well, my grandmother had been a nurse at the local hospital, and she quit work to care for her father, which is, you know, my great-grandfather. Because I remember him mostly being in a bed most of the time, and she would go back there and take care of him. His bedroom was in the back of her home, and and she gave him his care. You know, and he would come to the table and eat with us. But as you know, in that first, I had those are my memories of her caring for him, and then he passed away. You know, and I was very young, but now my grandmother, who is ninety four, you know, and she can't walk anymore. She's in a wheelchair, but my aunt has always lived there in that home. Well, now my aunt is providing the care. For my grandmother, she helps her get her bath, she feeds her, gives her medicine, takes her to her doctor's appointment. She takes care of her, essentially, the same way that my grandmother did for her father. And, you know, I'm thinking about that as I'm listening to you and I'm going, my aunt is doing what she learned, what she saw. She saw that this is not an issue. She probably doesn't lay in bed and think, well, this is something I have to do. This is the right thing to do. She's probably not even making those calculations. They're just in her to do these things this way and to provide compassionate care for my grandmother because she saw that my grandmother provided compassionate care for her father in the home. Mm-hmm. And I guess what I'm hearing you say when I'm listening to all this, and it's beautiful, is that we really need to start ingraining this in ourselves again this ability to take care of each other and care for each other and have genuine concern for each other not just when we're living these full vibrant healthy lives but whenever the death accepting that death is a part of life and quit avoiding it quit quit looking at death as something that we need to look the away from right and the more we've moved away from an agrarian society, the less reality death has had. We don't see it in the crops in the fall. We don't see it in the animals. There's just a total disconnect from all the mm. cycles of life. Um, and so I, I think what we do need to do is model compassionate care in our society. And the role of government, I think the mistake we've made in the hospice movement, it's not up to the government to provide all the care that we need. And so the medical community cannot provide 24-7 companioning. But what the government can do is enable and empower the family and the local community and the faith communities to step in. And I think it's that empowering role is where the government can be highly effective. Well, it makes it gets You're right, because I can see this in so many different ways and play out with a lot of people that I know. and, And even in micro ways in our lives. You know, you have you end up in a situation where you have to make these decisions, especially yes. if you've got your own family, your kids, you've got uh, budget restrictions, whatever framework right. you're living under, and then you have to make a decision as you've well outlined to go. Okay, now I have to care for an ailing loved one, right? Uh, but it doesn't plug in into that framework that you've established, and so then abundant the suffering then begins to it turns into just suffering all across the board, psychological right. suffering, financial suffering, um, and it trickles down. But what you're describing is going, hey, you know, we don't have to make that decision. We don't have right. to decide. Well, this is it. Whether this is convenient or not, you can make the decision to go. No, 
we're going to provide the care and we're not going to be uh, punished for it financially right. or whatever it may be. You know, we can make the adjustment and do this work and it doesn't, I guess, disrupt the whole framework of our existence, the system that we're plugged into. The way I would see it playing out is when a loved one, your aunt, your uncle, your grandmother, your grandfather, has a terminal diagnosis, what would happen would be if you decided to go this road of hospice care, of end-of-life care in six months, is that there would be a family meeting with a hospice social worker, and the, the issue would be, okay, family, what is the family plan of care? for this loved one and here are the options on the table so you might look at nursing home care you might look at traditional hospice care with the healthcare team but you also could look at hospice home companioning and say okay family what in the world are you going to do here right <laughs> and here are the options and we can enable you and empower you if you want to do this at home the, the other piece that I think is so important is that in hospice, we have, in our hospice, we call it an inpatient care center. So there are very short-term intensive care places so that if the family is overwhelmed with the care and they can step out and respite care could happen, or if things at the end seem to be overwhelming medically, then the, the patient can move on very short-term and at the end of life can be in a really controlled environment where they're comfortable. So I, I think the idea is to open up these options yeah. in our society to the families where how can we compassionately address the issue of suffering and there are many options on the table and you choose what's best for you and your family. But we haven't put those options on the table for people. But right. I, I think we need to. I do too. I mean, I'm, it's, it's got me thinking about so many different conversations I've had in my life. I remember and I guess I should say this before I tell the story. You know, I I see how this can, what you're describing, can actually bring people closer together and create community bonds and family bonds and even repair bonds. The way we're doing it now, it's almost like breaking bonds. Because I, I, the one story, without saying who this is, I'll try and tell it. You know, I had a friend several decades ago. And he was a lot older than me, and he was uh, taking care of his parents who were not – they weren't um, terminal, but they were elderly, you know. And so he had given up his job and his lifestyle, everything he had going for him to go care for his parents. They moved in with them and, you know, helped them set up their home, and he'd been doing that for a long time. And, you know, in our conversations, he would tell me, he said, you know, I know that their their death, both of their deaths are coming. I mean, I'm going to have to be there to see them through this, and I've accepted that. But the other side that I picked up from that was a resentment that had built between this individual and his multiple siblings who were like, no, that's too, we have our lives, we have our kids, we have our homes, we have our jobs that's not for us to do because that's going to disrupt us. That's going to disrupt these, all of our lifestyles. You know, if a system like what you're talking about were in place, it would, that type of negative thing that occurred from this situation that as my friend lived in these broken bonds and resentments that built, which could potentially affect generations of children within that family, uh, wouldn't exist potentially because instead they'd be drawn together in a way where it could work. Does that make sense? Sure. And if you really push 
back on and what is it that's creating this feeling of resentment i think if we're willing to be honest in our society we've created a highly individualistic highly narcissistic culture based on technology and i really think my sense is we're in a cul-de-sac and Mm. i think we need to find our way out of that cul-de-sac and i think this would be the beginning that there are alternatives and and one of the things that would be the spin-off of this is if you were spending time with a loved one at home you could appreciate the culture and the value and the wisdom of an elderly person but right now they're just pushed aside and we don't want to hear from them but i think we'd appreciate that we'd appreciate faith communities we'd appreciate government assistance and empowering and enabling and those things would start to become a part of our life again yeah but right now we're we're so incredibly narcissistic i think we're headed into a dead end if if we can't find a way to curb some of that narcissism that's out there i think you're right absolutely i mean i feel the same way i i feel like and i'm not just saying that by observing outward i mean i even struggle with that within myself i mean when i stare Uh at and i'm honest with myself in the mirror i and i analyze my perspectives you know the thoughts i have and try to really think about okay where are they coming from you know why Mm -hmm. do i think these things and is it accurate you know i i see it within myself i mean it, Mm -hmm. it lives within me this this uh narcissism and dread and disconnection i mean i try to do things that keep those things in check so i don't live in that cul-de-sac but i'm with everybody else you know all you have to do is drive down a busy like six-lane highway and look at the road rage (laughs) and you'll see the narcissism on full display that nobody's going to let you in and you can pick your turn signal on all day long and around the city and nobody's (laughs) going to care and you pull out and they're just about hit you yeah it's so interesting that you bring that up as an example and (laughs) years ago i was driving with an employee and we were on our way to a job and our area had was going through a boom and there was a lot of more traffic and i i told him because it was a negative i mean it was negative what i told him i said but i said this right here is like what's wrong with this he's like what are you talking about i said well like now the yellow lines that used to tell us hey this is your lane now we have yellow poles there and I said, we have to ask ourselves, why is the line not good enough? Because we don't care. They had to put poles up. The line had to literally go from horizontal to vertical off the ground because we could not maintain ourselves. We wanted to go over that line and cut in mm-hmm. because we we had to do it. And he's like, man, you're taking that way too far. And I said, I don't think that I am. I said, we instead of adjusting ourselves, we keep building fences. Mm-hmm. You know, we're not learning how to control ourselves anymore or maintain ourselves or to, or even say, hey, maybe I should put some space here. And then, and then I know that's probably a terrible analogy. I said, but I really do think that the, we're going to see more and more of that. If we can't learn to self-govern to some degree and, and include the other in that governance. Right. And it's back to what I was saying about the human soul. Are we going to actualize the worst of us? Are we going to actualize the, our ability to be mean and you know, really hurt others? Or are we going to actualize some ability for compassion and care? And I think Hospice on Companion gives us that opportunity. Yeah. And I think if you ever... 
when you have that experience of companion, companioning a loved one, it changes your soul forever. You're, you're never the same person. Mm. And that's the beautiful thing about hospice is it, it just gives you such a different hit on life to be with somebody as they take their last breath. You yeah. really see the world differently. Yeah. Well, and I mean, something else that you brought up was grief, too. I mean, it accounts mm-hmm. for the grief, the grieving process. You know, that's something um, many years ago, someone in our community had lost their son to suicide. And, you know, social media, if we if we fall into it and we allow ourselves, it becomes this sort of uh, very front facing journal. Mm-hmm. You know, and when someone's going through grief, as I witnessed at that time, that was what was happening. And I watched at that time period how the community at first was very accepting of that individual's grief. And then as time went on and that person continued to grieve publicly, I could see the change. People had a tolerance mm-hmm. for it. They were saying, oh, I'm, I'm I'm tired of this. You need to move on. And I thought so interesting how we want to grieve how we want to grieve when it's mm-hmm. our turn to hurt, but we're intolerant when other people are grieving. And it just made me start looking at the, the real nebulous nature of grief and how it is different for each person. They have their own timeline and their own way to walk through it. So that would be the advantage of this type of hospice home companion is this could continue on indefinitely. Yeah. Once a week, once a month, you just get together for dinner and you talk about yeah. what's going on in your life. And it's very safe. And I, I think that experience of sharing it with other people could be so healing for yeah. so many people. But we don't have those channels in our society right now. Yeah, yeah. no, it's true. There's, there's one more piece that are, we need to, th- what the, and this would be a revolutionary, but what we need to do is channel the narcissistic technology in healing ways. So if loneliness and isolation are the big issues in terms of spiritual suffering at the end of life, we need to look at how technology could be used to overcome that loneliness and isolation. So the first generation of computers were the desktop computers, right? Mm -hmm. And we went to laptop computers, right? What we need now is the baby boomer generation, 70-some million strong, comes in of life, is we need a whole new generation of computers. I, in my book I mentioned, I would call it the the bedtop computer. Hmm. So what the bedtop computer is, is to overcome loneliness and isolation with the use of technology. So the way it works is that you lose a lot of your manual dexterity as you get older, okay? So you have a giant keyboard that really fits onto a wheelchair. Uh, It's made, exactly, to just slip right into a wheelchair, okay? Okay. So it's got humongous keys on it, so you don't need a lot of manual dexterity. Instead of a mouse, which takes a lot of dexterity, you have a great big high toggle switch, toggle, and it's kind of like a game toggle board. And so you could just whack it left or whack it right for a right click or left click on the mouse. And no matter how little manual dexterity you have, you could do that, Mm -hmm. right? Okay, this keyboard has the technology to wirelessly interface with any flat screen TV in your house. So you have a module for your keyboard, you have a module for your uh, TV. So you could be, say, upstairs in a bedroom, and you could send a message down to the kitchen, say, can you bring me a glass of water? So you have in your house, you have this intercom system. And the advantage of putting it on a flat screen TV is as your vision gets crummy <laughs> as you get older you could make your email really big yeah. uh, on an 80 and 
TV. So you could, and you could have movies, you could have Netflix, you could have iTunes, and you could communicate forever with this TV. One of the big issues in hospice care is keeping your medication straight. Yeah, and especially for people that are pretty lonely and and isolated in their environment. So what you have is beside your computer, you have a little box that has all of your medications. Say you're taking eight a day, and they're in color coded little boxes. And so on your computer are eight little color coded keys, and your computer has a program. And so it's time to take the red pill. So the computer brings up a message, and it really talks to you. It's like Siri. And it says, it's 10 o'clock, take your red pill, and your computer starts flashing. And so you take your red pill. And what would be cool is your doctor, your nurse, and your pharmacist could come on to your computer with your permission, and they have your password, and they could check your medications and see what you're taking, and they could refill you automatically. So you don't even have to do that. And then when the hospice nurse comes in once a week, she checks your box to make sure that it's copacetic so that you really are taking these. But anyway, um, the technology is used to keep your medication straight. It's used for communication. It's used throughout your house as a wireless system. So it would help you with your loneliness and isolation. Um, If your daughter or granddaughter is going to the grocery store, she could Skype in with you and say, uh, what was it, Grandma, you wanted me to pick up? And your grandma picks it up uh, off the Skype. Yeah, so, and, and if she, was, she wants to chat on how grandma's doing when you're at the grocery store, she Skypes in with you. Yeah, I don't know, but the technology's there. Yeah, you're right. I mean, as you're saying that, I mean, we're using these types of tools for a lot of other things. I mean, mostly entertainment pur- purposes, right? Yeah. I mean, it all exists. I mean, we've got all of that in place. You just need to put it all together into that one system. Sure, and, and it's, it would be easy to do on a, and and really you've got eighty some million baby boomers that probably would buy it. What a great start! You have nursing homes, you have hospitals. The market's out there. Well, it's funny how you know think it talking about this. I'll tell you a little a little story. I mean, it's not exactly the same thing, but you know, you you can see me. I've got this big microphone. I've got these headphones on, and I was thinking about this the other day i've got my recorder sitting over here my my high-tech recorder that i do all my audio adjusting on and i i even carry it around with me when i want to do a mobile mm-hmm. podcast and i was out doing a, a recording for a client because we produce podcasts for other people and i'll bring my kit and we'll set up and we do the recording and as i was in there adjusting levels you know waiting on them to start i was trying to tune out all these sounds you know that i was picking mm-hmm. up people walking and breathing around the, the building and it hit me i was like you know my grandmother she cannot hear i mean her hearing is terrible and so when you go to visit her i know it, it's frustrating for her it's frustrating for everyone who's young the young kids that come i was like you know she can't hear them and so they can't they have to say the things three or four times well they get tired of that and i know she gets tired of it too and it kind of becomes an exhausting situation where you sure. feel like you're just present, but you're not really able to communicate. And it hit me as I was doing that podcast. I said, I wonder if I brought one of these microphones to my grandmother's house and I sat it by her and pointed it out to everybody at the table and then put these headphones on her mm-hmm. and I could sit and control these sounds, what would happen? So I threw my, I had my bag in my truck and I went over for Mother's Day and I brought it in, and I sat it up on the table, and my aunt, who takes care of her, she was like, well, let's let's see what happens, you know? And within 15 minutes, my grandmother had 
you know, her and hear her brain, I guess, kind of started adjusting to being able to hear. And we would all, we noticed as so like, she's laughing, she's smiling. She's not asking us what we're saying. And I thought, wow, this technology that I'm sitting around using for podcasts mm-hmm. right. created a community experience for my grandmother that she wasn't able to have. Hearing aids yeah. weren't working. And it's just yeah. kind of that thinking as you're talking. I guess I'm bringing that up because it's that way we have to start thinking is how can we take these tools that sure. we're using for all these other purposes. Like I think of this as podcast equipment, but it's become my grandmother's uh, connection to her family. Right. And if you push it, you actually could create a whole new industry. Because <laughs> you've got 70 some million baby boomers out there. You've got hospitals. You've got nursing homes. Yeah. You, yeah. So you could create a new industry here. Yeah. If you started pushing this. You know? Yeah. I mean, you think about it. I mean, I, I thought I left that day going, that was such a more, uh, it was a pl- an experience more akin to what I had as a child, where the family mm-hmm. was hanging around with my grandma and, you know, laughing and having a good time versus what it had been, which was yelling across the table. You know, it, it wasn't, it was broken communication. Yes. And that just, again, that gets into the crux of a lot of this is just the broken communication that we have, right? I mean. We've done two things in America, and I, I talk about it in my book, with end-of-life care. We've medicalized it, and we've institutionalized it. In terms of medicalizing it, it's unaffordable, and it's undesirable, but also institutionalizing it's highly undesirable. So, that, that again, we're back in the cul-de-sac, and we need to find a way out. And I think that use of technology really is one way out. Yeah. Uh, and we haven't even begun to think about how to use it. But you start putting together a hospice home companion and you start using the technology, especially with baby boomers. You start putting a service animal in place. You start offering programs in high school. You're really talking about a social revolution. Yeah. And and it's spiritual. And it's, it's at the level of the community and the family, which is where it needs to happen, that yeah. we really start rebuilding the family and we start rebuilding the community and we really rebuild faith communities so that people really understand that faith communities are there for compassion. It's interesting uh, that you're saying that, bringing that element into it, because that's something that, you know, I um, I experience, and I guess it maybe was framed through my own life and my own perspective and what I was looking for, my own micro awakenings, I guess, along the way, is that I've always looked for something that was um, really universal, that accepted people Mm -hmm. where they were and who they were um, and didn't want to change them too much except to help them in in some way, Mm -hmm. you know, whether in some brokenness they may be living in. And what you're talking about right there is that. I mean, it's like you can plug into any faith and it's helping people on the ground. I just, yeah, that matters so much to me. And and you've lived that kind of life. So, you know, firsthand what -hmm. that means, you know, you've, you've been in that situation. You've looked the despairing right in the face and offered help. And, And every soul has the potential to be there and to enable another soul. And I think the role of the government and faith communities is to enable the soul. Mm to go in that positive direction so much in our culture is enabling the darkness but we really need to start enabling the light i think yeah now i remember that even with my father that it was very clinical and dry and uh, you know and i I, and i understood it but i remember feeling like it probably doesn't need to be this way right you know 
Uh, I felt I, I really actually felt sorry for the doctor, to be honest with you, that had to bring us into mm-hmm. that room because I could tell she was doing her best, but this wasn't mm-hmm. her role. Like, it's just not right. she was there to take care of the, the scientific medical needs. And mm-hmm. she was trying to insert herself into a space where there was a ton of psychological and spiritual pain. And right. she just wasn't equipped for it. Right. And so that, to me, that would be the difference between pain and suffering. Yeah. And I think if we could plug the faith communities in, we could plug the local communities in, we could plug the families in, we plug service animals in, we can address that whole issue of suffering in a healing, holistic kind of way that the medical community is not empowered to do. It's The training's not there. And even if they had the training, they're not going to be there 24-7. Right. And then no, no doctor is going to show up 24-7, and your time with your father is going to be very limited. But So we need to shift the whole scenario really how would you how do you think that this would change our faith communities if this were the hub like if this became the the golden thread that ran through i mean interfaith dialogue even i mean how do you think this would change that it would revitalize our faith communities i think honestly so much of western christianity today is in the time of the sunset Mm. I think it's sinking into off the horizon, and we're. Well, I mentioned John Wesley. This was the the Industrial Revolution. Some people, scholars, have said it's debatable, but John Wesley's putting a social net out there stopped England from descending into a violent revolution like the French. I think this could really stop some of that cultural narcissism and I think our culture is descending into darkness. When you look at the insurrection at the Capitol and you look at the dialogue that's going on, it's really moving into great darkness. And this could be a light that really could counter that. Yeah. No, I, I wondered about that because I agree. I mean, I see the same thing. In fact, I mean, I, I won't be, if I'm being truthfully honest, or truthfully honest, I guess they're both the same yeah. thing. <laughs> if I'm being honest, though, about it, that's probably why I've I've sort of stepped back from uh, religion and faith, even in the last several mm-hmm. months, because I, I told someone the other day, I said, you know, I'm looking for something right now a space that's much more practical and i said and that is what's what i hoped that faith and religion would be is not what it's turning out to be i want something right. that is um very real with bare feet on the ground and in looking right. at humanity in its ugliness and its brokenness and how it hurts and is addressing that and if it's addressing that and it's actually mending it if it's a um putting a compress on it or a salve then then I'll be attracted to that. I don't care what mm-hmm. what um, faith that is at this time. I think that perhaps that might be our only way we're going to make it through. And then when faiths arise out of that, I'll be all in. I just I'm having trouble right now. I really am. I mean, mm-hmm. I'm not gonna, I, I needed to say it out loud because I'm at a, again in my life yet again you know paddling down a bayou and and seeing six forks ahead of me you know mm-hmm. yeah and when you look at the life of jesus he didn't hang out in the temple in jerusalem he hung out with the people on the street yeah. and i think that's where faith is real and alive is can you really be there in the midst of the suffering and and really in a practical way offer a message of hope yeah 
Well, you it mentioned did. that brings it full circle to what you said at the beginning when you went to Assisi. I mean, you brought up St. Yeah. Francis. I mean, you see, he, I, I have always been attracted to St. Francis as well, and it was probably because of that, because I saw a simple man who had bought into war and bought into opulence Mm -hmm. all the things that we see now you know violence opulence aggression um fame to be somebody filled with ego (laughs) and then to just see that all come crashing down in in his in the fissure he just arose as something new Mm -hmm. you know very barefoot and in the dirt and simple and plain one of my favorite stories I, I saw in a documentary was the story of Hiram hearing the clacking sticks of the um, the lepers. Hmm. You know, and I, I I wept when I saw that because I thought this is just not who we are. You know, when these lepers clack the sticks and they're they're doing that to let people know you're getting close to a leper colony. You don't come close to us, you know. And he heard that sound and went to it mm-hmm. to care for. And I thought. That is so not what we are collectively anymore. Mm-hmm. We, we run away from things like that. You know, we don't look at it. We're like, no, that needs to be tucked away, like as in a nursing home somewhere. You know? Right. Yeah. What, what Hospice Home Companion ultimately would do if it became mainstream is so if you were an eight or 10 year old little kid in the house, you would see grandma being taken care of at the end of life by your parents uh, you would see people from a faith community or civic group come in and do things for grandma and it really would shift how you would see end of life and and your whole perspective your your whole worldview would really be different than it is today you know it's interesting i mean this is this i don't gosh i don't know i might get some heat for talking about this but there's an organization that came into our community we we live in a hurricane battered area. We've had two hurricanes and floods and ice storm this year, and it's really wrecked our community. I mean, there's people just suffering, like really have needs right now, and we're just going to be on the mend for many years if we don't get hit again. And after that time period, a lot of organizations came in to help, you know, and put a salve on the community mm-hmm. uh, for food, shelter, water, helping people clean their homes. And I don't want to disparage any groups that came in and did that, mm-hmm. but we did have an organization that came in. And I remember going, they are helping people, but their faith wouldn't allow uh, certain volunteers to help them in their efforts because they were homosexuals. And they were like, they had a questionnaire, you know, that they asked people like, well, what, you know, what are, are you a homosexual? I mean, flat out, it was like on their questionnaire. If you are, you can't volunteer with this group. And that, for me, was just such a painful thing because I want to lift them up for doing the good work. But at the same time, I was like, how can we – this is where the religion part of it uh, gets a little toxic because now we're we're, – while we're helping people, we're also reminding other people that you're not good enough to help until you change and be like us. And that part concerns me. A little bit sure. about where we're headed even today i'm like i want to see them i want to see these groups and, and faiths do this but i also don't want to see people disparaging the process it's just so complicated i guess well the dalai lama said my religion is kindness yeah 
Yeah. And so can you bring kindness across the board to everyone or yeah. do you pick and choose? And if you pick and choose, it's manipulation, really. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, right. And that's where I've wondered. I was like, you know, I get that there's a service element and real people are being helped. But is it also just a spearhead, you know, sure. uh, like an agenda like, well, we can go in and help and then push another agenda because we know people are in a, a dire need that they, they have a situation. They're weak right now. Well, the the advantage of hospice home companion is that it kind of lets people that are Baptist be Baptist and yeah, Catholic yeah, be yeah. Baptist <laughs> and agnostic be agnostic. So it really stop. I think it would not have that evangelical proselytizing kind yeah. of piece. There's one more piece of end of life care. Can I bring that no, up? No, please do, please. Yes. Okay. So when you get to the end of life, Eckhart Tolle and other spiritual writers have talked about it. That you really do comes with a natural death. You really come to what Robert Frost would call the kind of the path not taken. That you come to a fork in the road. And so as you get near the end of death, you can either decide that the ego has to let go of everything in your life. So you're going to let go of this body, you're going to let go of your material possessions, you're going to let go of your accomplishments in life. That can create an immense sense of despair if you're hanging on to the ego. Like life is really crappy. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And it creates sadness and disillusionment. But the other way is to, if you let go of that, is what lies beyond uh, what is this openness to divine spirit that we are anyway, but I haven't seen my whole life. And so it sort of cracks the egg of the the ego. And so there's that opportunity for that spiritual awakening, those moments of grace that you were talking about. So I think that's one of the beautiful things that would happen through Hospice Home Companioning is people are at that for in the road and they really have that opportunity for a spiritual awakening that may not be at any other time or place in their life yeah absolutely. and that's one of the beauties of end-of-life care is that's an amazing opportunity for that moment of grace for that yeah. awakening. i mean what a shame it would be i mean you're right as we talked about at the beginning those moments are like our doors or gateways they and that's are. a door and a gateway that everyone should have access to and what a shame it is that if that special moment can't be utilized that way right you know yeah so can can we can the faith communities enable people to see that for what it is as a moment of grace and step through it yeah yeah that's beautiful gosh we had a dynamic talk i'm so excited that (laughs) we talked i really am this is wonderful i i feel like we covered a lot of territory and i really do wish you success i mean i hope that you can get this in front of the right people i don't know what that path is but yeah it seems like i i feel one of the things i mentioned in the book is that i feel there's an ancient wisdom tradition from the at least from the middle ages on and i call it the ancient hospice way Mm. And my book was an attempt to lay out that tradition and to say that it's emerging in our midst. And my my gut sense is that it's going to find its way forward. Yeah, and it doesn't have much of anything to do with me. I might be the vehicle or the instrument, but it's not my idea. It it really is there and it's coming in our society. Yeah, and it may be. It, you're right. I think that. You know, sometimes these things swell out out of great chaos. I mean, they become uh-huh. things that we have to do. We might harden even more before we get there, honestly, right. collectively. And that's, that's something that saddens me because I, I've tried to raise my boys and my daughter 
uh, to be kind people and prepare them to be kind adults and be helpers um, and not be selfish. But I do fear because I, I do fear that we are hardening and that when they're adults, they might be in a world that might yet be harder still and not. Um, they're going to have to be arcs. That's what I try to tell them. You have to be a, like a personal arc to some degree and, and consider the animals you're putting inside your personal arc of your heart. You know, what are they? Are they kindness, compassion, mercy, love, you know, goodwill, generosity, make sure you're carrying those things. Even mm-hmm. if sometimes you get hard on the outside, um, cause there's a lot of storms and waves crashing, just at least right. be a vessel so you can let those things out when the weather clears, I guess. Great. That's beautiful. Well, thank you for sharing all your stories. Oh, this was, you know, I love these types of conversations because it is an opportunity. I'll be truthful. It helps me. I mean, I, it's a great help to me that you offer just allowing me to tell those stories. Mm -hmm. Um, I find that when we share these things, it helps us connect with each other, Mm -hmm. you know, in a real intimate way. Yeah. So that's what I would say is the power of Hospice Home Companion is I think these stories would get shared in the care. I want to, I'm going to have to read the book now. I mean, I wanted to, I'm going to get a copy of it and read it because that is something okay. I, I care about. I really do. I, I, after the experience with dad, I, um, it left a, a ghost. I mean, that's the only way mm-hmm. I could, I feel haunted by it, you know, and it feels like I'm a haunted house sometimes. Okay. Well, it's available on Amazon. If you have trouble getting it, let me know and I'll send you a copy. Yeah, I'm going to get it. I'm going to get it for sure. I'm happy. I know it. I'm hey there, good news listener. I hope you've enjoyed this episode as much as I've enjoyed producing it. Now, it's time for the Fishing for Goodies segment, where I turn my interviewer role over to the Good News Fishbowl. Longtime listeners know that the Fishbowl contains over 400 unique questions, many seated by you, the listeners. Did you know that you could submit unique questions to the Fishbowl? That's right. Just call the Good News Hotline at 802-459-1668 to have your question added. You can also visit findthegood.news and send me an email. Now, let's take that dive into the fishbowl. There is a part of this show right here at the end. It's a little different than what we've been doing. I don't know if you can see this right here. It's a fishbowl, uh-huh. and I've got a bunch of questions in here. And what I do at, with each guest is I draw three random questions at the end, and then okay. we'll discuss them. So if you're game, I'm going to dive sure. deep. And let's see what happens here. <laughs> All right, question number one. Who had the most influence on you growing up? Probably my grandfather. I lived with my grandparents for a while, and I was, and it was a small town in West Virginia. He worked in a coal mine. He would come home in the evening just covered with coal dust. My oh. grandmother would make him take a shower in the basement before he <laughs> would go upstairs, and he had one of these black little um, lunch boxes, and he would always leave half a sandwich, usually peanut butter and jelly, but half of a sandwich in his lunchbox for me, and I would eat the sandwich while he took the shower, and then we'd come upstairs and he'd talk about being in the coal mine. Wow. So just his presence was amazing to me. How old were you when there? What, what age do you think? Like about a seven-year-old. Oh, wow. He was just such a neat person. He was kind of like bigger than life. Yeah. That's, see, that's something I don't have. All my grandfathers, you know, I was young when they passed away, and 
I, when I hear, I was just telling somebody this the other day. I was like, you know, I see people who have that, or they talk mm-hmm. about going fishing with their grandfather or taking a trip with their grandfather. Yeah. And I'm like, man, I don't have those types of memories. Uh, and so it's interesting. I, I, that's why I asked how old you were, you know, like that's a beautiful thing to have that in your, in your mind. That's why I'm, I'm really passionate about Hospice Home Companion happening because it'd be so wonderful if a seven-year-old could bake cookies with her grandmother and mm. the kid or grandma being in the nursing home, if they could just get together when the little kid gets off the school bus and they could bake cookies. Yeah. That would just be a great experience for a little kid. Yeah, yeah, for sure. I think my son, my youngest son, is getting to experience that to some degree with my wife's mother, you know. And mm-hmm. uh, but there's there's a lot of grief in our family right now. My wife's father passed away last year, so it's mm-hmm. kind of still very um, a tender wound, you know. But once that wound sure. heals over time, I think we'll get back to those times again. Good. That's a good answer. I, I'm gonna mm-hmm. that, again. I've been thinking about that too. The fact that you brought that up that's yeah. uh, powerful for me. Okay, let's see what else we have in here. Huh, I've never had anybody ask, get asked this before. Should parenting classes be mandatory for new parents? No, I wouldn't say mandatory. Yeah, but that's I a hard word. <laughs> I, I think they're desirable. Yeah. But um, I, I think, again, it's the role of the faith community and the family yeah. to really model what. And I think sometimes modeling is more powerful than the, it's the most powerful way of teaching. Yeah. So like you were saying, whatever is modeled for you yeah. is probably the way you're going to parent. <laughs> that's that's true, man. That is absolutely true. I think you're right. I mean, maybe ma- mandatory is not a great word. I don't love it in, in most situations, but. Uh, yeah, the idea of making sure that your children are prepared when they have children, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, modeling it. I like that. And the hospice home companioning gives faith communities and families a way to model care in the home. So the idea you don't kick grandma out, you don't push her away in a nursing home, you bring her into your family, you take care of her, you see the faith community modeling that care, then you have a better idea of what parenting is. Yeah, yeah, it's true. and, and I think one of the most important parts of love or compassion is what are you going to do for somebody that can't do anything for you when there's no. <laughs> right. You know, yeah. And, and when grandma's not going to give you anything back, you know, what, what are you going to give out of the goodness of your heart? Yeah. And those people most of the time have, have done stuff for us. Right. I mean, we just maybe are, we're too young to fully wrap our mm-hmm. arms around it, but. Yeah, you know, you think about that. I mean, even like my grandmother, I think about how many weekends I spent there and how it was a safe place for me and the meals she cooked and little details of that. I, yeah. I'll share that with my son sometimes. I said, you know, like we'll visit with her at the uh, at her her big dining room table, which is the same table that's been there since I was born. Mm-hmm. And I, I tell him, I said, this table we're sitting at, I, this was a whole world under here when I was little. I would play mm-hmm. under this table all day long and pull the chairs in and make my own little... space you know so those things they've done a lot for us we just when we get Mm -hmm. get when we get older and get plugged into what we think matters sometimes we forget to appreciate all those things that really do okay last one of these let's see what we got huh okay it's another one about your youth (laughs) is there anything that you regret not doing when you were younger 
Mm. I probably didn't appreciate my parents. Uh, I guess maybe that's kind of universal, but I think they made a lot of my, I came from not a really lower class family, but a, a middle class family. And I don't think I appreciated the sacrifices my parents made to kind of keep my life afloat. Yeah. <laughs> it wasn't easy for them. <laughs> my father was in the military. We traveled a lot. He was under a lot of stress. I don't think I really appreciated what they did for me yeah. until I got much older in my life. Isn't that true for most of us, right? I feel the same way. Yeah. You know, I think I can sit around and think about my parents over and over and over again and some new memory will pop up and I'm and I try to put myself in their shoes now and go, what were they you know, as a kid, you pr- you process it differently, you know, the whole world's in front of you, but then you look back and it's like, man, they were really actually doing without sometimes or mm-hmm. really making a real sacrifice so I could have something. Yeah. And even when my father at times was an alcoholic, I, I look back and he's doing the best he could do, really. I mean, and Boy, I just something. that for what it was, you know. Well, you just said right there, do you know how often I, I say that now? I mean, when I talk, tell stories about my dad's and I, I'm honest about him. I saw I give him credit for the good and also give him credit for mm-hmm. the bad. And but I always add that no matter what now and i used to not when i was younger i and now say you know he was doing the best with what he was given he didn't he did his very best and now i have to do my very best and i'm sure my kids will look back at the same way and say you know have complaints <laughs> yeah. for sure i got one last question it doesn't come out of the fishbowl i ask everybody this at the end and it's did anything good happen today um yes um in hospice i did sort of a a visit with a patient which was a virtual visit and this was a patient i won't mention any names that really was struggling with the end of life and with his wife dying at the end and i was the person that ended up as a chaplain with him and he sort of thanked me for being with him and really all i did was listen to this person cry i didn't do anything else i was just the person that this he could cry with yeah so that's powerful man you know and so i think that's wonderful to be in that role with a divine spirit put Mm. you there Wow. Where you had that opportunity. Yeah. yeah, you get an opportunity to open your heart that in a way and, and absorb that with somebody, some, what somebody's putting out mm-hmm. and just give them comfort. Mm-hmm. I, I'm starting to believe that more and more when I vocalize what, if someone were to sit and ask me what I believe, sometimes people want to know, what do you believe? <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I used to maybe make that answer complicated, but it's that i mean what somewhat what you just said is like i just want people to be comforted and be at peace and have a healing and health i mean i just think mm-hmm. if we have some of those things if we can do that for each other we can start to fix some things mm-hmm. doesn't need to, to be me, complicated it, it's the it's the goodness of the divine spirit that no matter if we reject it we ignore it we push it away there's still a goodness to the divine spirit I found
Thanks for listening to my Beacon Series conversation with Reverend Dr. Kenneth Patrick. If you found something of use in this conversation, please share this episode with a friend, leave a review, or consider visiting findthegood.news donate, where you can help me continue this good news mission from the Louisiana Gulf Coast. I thank you for pressing play and for syncing up with this good news beacon.